0: of your eggs in one basket and you also recognize that you have to try to develop a contingency plan. So what I'm going to try to do to the best of my abilities is to let you go at the time that we said you would be going. Um, We'll have to run through a couple of slides. A lot of the information I'm going to share is basic anyway. So if you have any questions, I can see the Q&A. Um, Some of you have already asked if we're going to offer the session today. The answer is true. Um, Lazo, you may want to take a look at some of those other questions, too, because uh, I know there's at least one person who said that they won't be able to join us and stay for the entire time. So with that said, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, we will take care of the questions, no worries. Sure, thanks. Outstanding.
0: Yep. Okay, well, let me see if I can do this. I need to share my screen and then click on this. And hopefully everyone is able to see my slideshow. Let me put it in screen mode, with, um, slideshow mode. And there it is, okay. Well, again, um, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is, is, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the first of hopefully many more webinars of this nature. Uh, many of you are in the same situation we're facing here in the United States. Uh, there is the coronavirus. We're taking it very seriously. I'm actually operating from my home office. I may be here for a while. I'm going to do everything that my government authorities have suggested and directed we do, I encourage you to do the same. Uh, I've gone through many viruses like this before, not personally, but I haven't seen or experienced anything quite like this. So I'm taking it as seriously as we should, but that doesn't mean that we can't continue to learn and grow. So since many of us are not traveling as much as we used to, in fact, I would normally be right there in the Middle East we can still continue to learn and grow. And that's what this opportunity presents us right now. So bear with me as we go through this information regarding how facility managers can better prepare themselves for emergencies such as the ones that we're experiencing right now. As I mentioned, I tend to travel quite a bit. I've had the wonderful opportunity to visit just about every continent, and I tend to look for those things that are more in common between us than not in common. Not in common is gonna be pretty easy. But I found that what is in common with whoever I engage with is the desire to provide a comfortable, safe workspace. And when you're not at work, than a home space or a play space or a praying space. And that's one of the joys about being a member of the facility management profession. So I am truly pleased and thankful to have this opportunity to share some good news in terms of what we can continue to do to promote facility management professionalism and the advocacy necessary for folks to provide us the kind of support and resources that we need in order to ensure they have a functional, safe and productive environment. This webinar is about helping us to establish and improve our organizational ability to prepare, recover and respond from an emergency. And I will cover this very broadly in four phases, mitigation and prevention, preparedness, recovery, and response. Do not expect to become an expert in emergency management after listening to this webinar. This is to give you an opportunity of more of what we can do in the role that we provide for those who are directly responsible for providing emergency management as well as response and recovery capability. But they can't do their job unless we can support them and we do our job. So these four phases will address what we as facility professionals can do or should know as they are going through the four phases of emergency management. So, first, a definition What is an emergency? Exactly. Well, I put that in captions in the top. Any event that can negatively negatively impact in organizations, production, safety, or personnel. I don't think anybody would disagree that the pandemic outbreak that's going on in many of our countries would be a fitting example of what constitutes an emergency. Now, with that being said, putting our heads in the sand and taking the ostrich approach is not going to help resolve this challenge that are facing the people who use our facilities we have a responsibility. Number one, first and foremost, protect critical assets from those hazardous risks. And when I say critical assets, I mean first and foremost people, we are still the most valuable asset to any organization, followed by the people protecting the property. And as we are addressing this emergency and trying to return to normality, We should also be striving to make sure that the people and the property is returned for continued use. Our priorities are number one, save lives. Number two, sustain business continuity. So that when the emergency is over, and this one will be soon enough, and we get back to normal operations, our facilities are still functional, and they're still ensuring, the, and and they're still ensuring that our people can use them as critical enablers to accomplish whatever it is that they seek to do, whether it's work, play, pray, or stay. Now, we have two types of emergencies: we have the sudden events, and we have those time-to-prep events. And we'll be going through each of those that are identified within the sub bullets under sudden events and time to prep. We will see if there's an opportunity for me to access a case study specifically on an aircraft crash that I was involved in. I also should say that I am going to allow folks to take a break. Um, Normally it would be an hour or 50 minutes, then about 10 minutes, 15 minutes after that, then another hour worth of content delivery. I will have to just pick a time to see how far we have gone and how well we are on track to letting you go when we had planned to let you go, but still give you an opportunity to take a break for a few minutes. So moving right along. All right, there are certain common considerations that we should recognize when it comes to any type of emergency, whether it is a sudden one or one that we have time to prep. First and foremost, you have to understand the lingo, the terminology, certain basic things that emergency management personnel use in order to convey the severity of a situation. A storm watch versus a storm warning. A storm watch is the imminent arrival of that storm within 36 hours. A storm warning is that storm is now closer and it can impact your location in 24 hours. So knowing those terms and others related to other events will give you an opportunity to take certain preparatory actions with your facilities to make sure that they can weather the storm as needed. Some of the examples are safe havens. There may be times when you may have to shelter your people in place because they cannot get out of the way of the threat that's coming or your facilities are reinforced so strong that they have a high probability, a higher probability of survivability. Cutting off the utilities for those facilities that won't be used or could now end up becoming ignition sources as a result of the onset of that threat. Hot, warm, and cold zones, what are they? Hot zones is basically where the threat is exactly. You don't want to be there unless you are qualified and protected to be there. A warm zone is one that's near the threat, but not actually in a threat. That's normally where we put our first responders, particularly when they are reconstituting, they're resting. And whenever they're ready to now deal with the threat, they go straight into that hot zone. Cold zone, those are the zones that are safe. And that's where we need to put all of our people who aren't engaged in this situation. So again, first priority is to protect them. Cold zones don't have any threat activities. Command and control, it is the backbone of the military. It is a backbone when it comes to emergency services as well. There has to be a clear understanding of who is in charge and then what resources are under his or her control to include responding personnel in order to now take the, deal with the threat and save people and property communications, making sure folks know exactly what's the, what to do at any given time, verbally and virtually, as well as being able to provide the resources, the supplies, the transportation, the food, even housing, so that these people who are now addressing this threat can effectively go in, do what needs to be done, and then leave. Earthquakes. Some of us live in countries where th- earthquakes are a problem. These are those threats that occur without warning. I know they're seismic detectors, but typically by the time they, get, they register a quake, it's already started. And obviously, depending on the severity of the tremor, you can have building damage or it can collapse on you. So what do you do? First and foremost, if it is reinforced to do this, Find those safe locations in the building, so that now people can have a element of protection while the term is coming. Also, what are the danger locations within the building? It could be a chemical storage area. It could be some area that is still weakened because of a prior event. But know where they are, so that people don't go to them. Practice drills of evacuating your building. Nothing will stop people from doing what they need to do whenever they are panicked. So the more we practice leaving buildings through planned evacuation routes, the quicker people will respond if they do find out a trauma has come. Also, cut off those utilities so that now an electrical system doesn't become a source of ignition for other damage that can occur. Water damage and electricity, you certainly don't want to do that. Evacuation staging areas. That's where you want your people to congregate once they get out of harm's way. That's important because we need to make sure that we can account for every single person that has come into our facilities. Because at some point in time, somebody's gonna ask, where are they? And that's why communication procedures with employees and families are so important. So that we can let people know that yes, this person came to work today, This person has been evacuated to staging area, create a designation, and that person will be able to get in contact with you, or you can try to reach this person at this phone number or this website. Fire. The U.S. Occupational Safe and Healthy Agency requires all employers, private as well as public, to protect their employees from fire and emergencies. Minimum of 10 employees. Minimum of 10. So what can we do in order to address this legal requirement, depending on what is required by your local municipality? First, we can identify every single fire hazard within the workplace. Again, identify those potential ignition sources, like our electrical control rooms. What type of fire, fire protection do we have on hand? And is it available to control each of the hazards? So you may strategically place uh, uh, fire extinguishers in areas, or you want to make sure that your fire suppression systems are completely functional and test them from time to time. Also, who is responsible for controlling these ignition sources? If we're talking about electrical control room, guess what? That means whoever's responsible for your power production or electrical system needs to be on hand so that those shuttles can be done when it's necessary. Also, fire equipment maintenance plan. How do we know that our fire suppression systems, active and passive, are fully functional? Well, we should plan for their maintenance no differently than we plan for the maintenance of our HVAC systems and other components of our facilities. Also, housekeeping procedures. That's not the same thing as custodial services. This is literally somebody that's going through different rooms. And they're making sure the potential fire hazards are identified and eliminated. For an example, there are some offices out there where power strips, look like spaghetti networks. They are tripping hazards and they can cause shorts. They need to be addressed and eliminated as quickly as possible. Bomb threats, unfortunately, in the latter part of the 20th century and this first part of this century, this has become a reality. The best defense for them is preparation. I am not suggesting that you all of a sudden don a bomb suit and try to defuse a device, negative. You have explosive ordnance um, dis- um, disposal personnel that can do that. Fire departments have them. Now, what we should do is develop a checklist in order to address a would-be bomb threat. And the checklist is pretty simple. But you have to be calm because every single word that you get from a would-be bomb threat caller is gonna make a big difference when it comes to those first responders dealing with whatever it is that this person claims that they've done. Number one, the exact time of the call and every single word that the caller used. If you have a recording capability, then certainly use that, don't rely on memory. And ask other specific questions. When is the bomb going to explode? Some bombers will actually want you to know that. For whatever the psychological reason, if the bomber is saying the bomb is going to be set off in a future period of time, you don't necessarily want to take them at their word, but that may give you time to evacuate people out of the building. Also ask these questions. Where is the bomb? What kind of bomb is it? What will cause it to explode? Why did you place it there? All of those things aren't necessarily things for you to act on. This person may call your customer service desk or your work control desk. This information accurately captured can be relayed to police authorities. And now they can do what they are trained to do, which is eliminate that bomb threat, whether it's a hoax or a real world situation. Medical emergencies, they happen within our facilities on a regular basis some of the examples of people who suffer from diabetes um their ox- um, occupational hazards people slip and fall one interesting stat that i found was that 1.5 million americans experience a heart attack per year and 40% of them result in death so if our job again is to save lives then what can we do well we can maintain a list of the names and the phone numbers of all of our employees who actually have medical response training. They need to be certified and qualified to render that type of assistance. But having that information in advance can actually save someone's life as opposed to reaching out from somebody off property to provide that kind of immediate response. You still do that, absolutely. Call the ambulance at least you can render some immediate assistance while that person is in that stress situation. That person's ability to do that really depends on the location of the first aid kit or the station. Again, quick response just to administer quick support. And if that person is trained, and they should be, then they may be able to render first aid procedures like CPR. A lot of facilities now have defibrillators. If that person is trained to do that, That may be something that can be used to until the emergency response personnel from the hospital or the fire department can respond and now use their training to save that person's life. Tropical storms, depending on where you are, this is a way of life. Here in the U.S., we experience them all the time and they seem to be getting worse and worse and worse. The key to remember when it comes to tropical storms is literally their severity. Our facilities, when they're constructed, are are rated to handle certain lateral loads. Meaning, the wind will blow and significant damage won't occur, depending on the facility type, until it reaches a certain level. That's why understanding what level hurricane or tornado is coming in your direction. A category five, a category six, that's severe winds. That's over 200 miles an hour. That is not something that we wish to withstand if we don't have to. You get out of that one's way. But as it gets lower, then you might be able to determine if there is time, since this is one of those sudden ones that can pop up at any time. Whether there are facilities on your campus, on your in your portfolio, that can be used as a shelter in the U.S schools are rated to be able to withstand certain levels of hurricane lateral loads. Why? Because we want our kids to be protected. and They can provide great locations if there's no other place for someone to go. I put this website here just to let you know that there is free information that is accessible by anybody across the planet if you want some detailed information on Hurricanes, the types, and what we can do in order to reduce our threat to people and property when they come. Please take advantage of that. Severe weather, again, depending on where you are, can also have catastrophic effects, whether it's an avalanche, if you're operating in a mountainous area, or a blizzard, which really has no geographic preference other than the fact that you have to have the right weather conditions. What do we do as facility managers? Well, I remember when I was in the active duty military, living in the Washington, D.C. area, we had a snow removal plan. We literally had a plan of attack, so to speak, on how we're going to keep that installation operational whenever we receive snowfall, which would happen every single year. We had to maintain our backup generators in case we were stuck on that base for whatever reason, we clearly needed to have power to continue at least basic or minimal operations. We would have to ensure that our roof drains and gutters were clear of any debris, foliage in this case, because all that's going to do is going to cause a problem whenever the snow starts coming, and snow is ice and ice is heavy, the less obstructions we have up there, the better, because we certainly don't want our roofs to collapse. Fire sprinkler pipes. When it gets cold, these pipes freeze. If it gets too cold, they will snap. If we're talking about fire sprinklers, then we can actually have more damage than would normally be expected when it comes to a snowstorm, so they need to be checked. And as I mentioned, understand the terminology. Droughts, depending on where you live, can be quite severe. What do we do as facility managers? Because these are one of those things that it takes a while to come. We have time to plan for this. So first and foremost, you consult your local municipality. Somebody within your jurisdiction is responsible for emergency management. It could be civil services. Doesn't make a difference. But they would have the historical information regarding what kind of drought your area has experienced in the past. And then it can help you identify what kind of risks you might be facing. Will there be water shortages as a result of it? Brownouts, meaning we'll have to basically do some load shedding because of the high draw. All of these things can help us to recognize those actions that we can take as facility managers in preparation for the onset of a drought. We might even decide, depending on how prone an area is, not to provide our facilities there. We find some other, prop, some other type of property. Even if we're not able to do that, we can certainly develop certain actions that our people can take in order to mitigate the severity of a drought in their particular location. And all throughout this, we're educating our people on the fact that this is a risk that we could face depending on where we live. And we evaluate how we can now mitigate that risk so that now we don't suffer from it. Another free website offered by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, National Drought Mitigation Center. The URL is on the screen, please access that too. There's a lot of historical information and not just related to the United States that you can access to help you develop a plan to deal with drought. And if you're in a hot, arid area, then yes, this is a resource you want to take a look at. Floods, they happen to be the most common of all natural hazards that most of us will face across the globe. In the U.S. in particular, it costs costs billions of dollars of damage and we continue to have them. They're not going to weigh. So what do we do as facility managers? Again, be familiar with our local emergency management counterparts where are they, who are they, and what plans do they have in case a flood is expected to come in your local area where your facilities and where your people are. Also, if you are unable to avoid the floodwaters for whatever reason, whether there are actions that we can take in order to now reduce the level of water that may infiltrate your facilities. It's laborious. But it works. Sandbags is an example. This screen, so that now you can cover certain areas so the water doesn't penetrate as readily as it would if there was no protection. And lumber, because you may need to prop certain things up in order to protect that. High ground is a wonderful thing to have when it comes to a flood. Identify where those high ground areas are on your property. There are flood zone maps produced by your national or local municipality it provides a historical account and usually color-coded on where the flood prone areas are and I have to tell you if you don't have to build in a flood prone um, flood zone don't do it avoid it because the water will win as we found out in the United States and of course other countries have also learned the same thing but even if we can't relocate well then the same thing as i had mentioned before shut off those utility services particularly electrical power sources because needless to say water and electricity don't mix and we could cause a major problem that began with a single problem and if available depending on where you live flood insurance if nothing else if your property does become damaged or destroyed there would be financial resources available to ensure that you can now have that facility repaired if necessary. Biological attacks. This is not something you wish to play with. I'm being candid. There are professionals that will respond to these. That is not our job. We do not provide response capability but we can recognize what the signs are when it comes to a threat from a biological attack. These are some of the things you can look for. A package arrives in your administrative services and distribution center, and there is no return address. Doesn't necessarily mean it is an attack, but it makes you wonder why this individual didn't want the ability to return the package in case it did not arrive properly at its destination. Foreign country of origin. Now, of course, we're talking to a global audience right now. So we're talking about a country where you might not be expecting some type of package from because you're not having any business dealings with them. Again, it does not mean that this is a biological attack, but it does raise an eyebrow. Why would someone from this location be sending us a package when we have no relationship? Misspelled words on a package is an indication that somebody does not necessarily have a command of the language of the individuals who are living in the jurisdiction that received this package. Again, it raises an eyebrow. A real telltale sign is somebody addressing a package based on the title of the individual that's expected to receive it, as opposed to the person's name. If they know who the CEO is and it's intended for the CEO, then you should actually have the CEO name there. If it's not there, that person doesn't know. Raises an eyebrow. And anything that indicates, do not x-ray. That's a telltale sign. And unless you're in a medical profession, it's a little eye raiser. So if you experience any of these things, call the local authorities and let them know what has happened. They will send somebody to the respond. You're not expected to open up the package. Be safe. Protect yourself and protect your people. It may be nothing, but it may also be something. A lot of information is available on the different nerve agents and threats from a biological perspective from our own CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Free website accessible by anybody and everybody. Please take advantage of the information that's there too. What happens if we have somebody that seems to be suffering from a chemical release, whether it's a spill or direct poisoning? Well, again, we're not medical professionals. We call them. So what do we do? We ask the local fire department to assist us in developing a response procedure in case it does happen on our property. Also, we ensure all storage containers that contain chemicals are property labeled. Some of us work in manufacturing facilities. Some of us support those who work in manufacturing facilities. They need to know what threats are readily available around them. And as a result of that, any product that you produce or um, is delivered to your property should have a MSDS to it. Something that identifies exactly what is the chemical and what are the threats that a person could face, and also how do you properly store and dispose of that chemical. Now, they're not free. If you're buying the chemical, it automatically comes to it, but you can actually purchase different MSDSs at that website that I identified. If you do have a release, then you need to now execute a procedure that will communicate the occurrence to all affected personnel. In order to affect the execution, you had to plan that procedure to be executed. All the more reason why, since we have time for these, make sure that you take the time to prepare. And as I mentioned before, the hot zone, warm zone, and cold zone, for those who have not been affected by this discharge, evacuate them out of the local area, get them to the cold zone as quickly as possible so that they themselves don't become a casualty. See how we're doing right now. Okay, um, we're going to take a pause, that's in about 15 minutes, so I'll move pretty quickly now. Civil disturbances, they tend to occur as well. The left side of my screen actually shows the different types that could cause activities that can cause this civil disturbance, labor disputes, um, very exciting sporting events, political rallies, economic conferences, musical conferences, uh, concerts, uh, government decisions that aren't very popular, or there may be some ethnic or cultural event. What do you do? Well, if you know that something is going to occur on your campus that might cause a civil dis- um, disturbance, you may want to retain a services of security, temporarily or permanently but they will may hopefully help make sure that things don't get out of hand. You wanna secure and protect your windows and doors as quickly and as much as possible so that people don't get hurt as a result of their being there and used as weaponry. Um, If you can secure your parking lot from anybody coming in, do so. If you can um, relocate your vehicle fleet so that angry people don't use them and destroy them, then do so and also remove all trash receptacles. Why? Because when people are upset, they tend to grab whatever they can and those trash receptacles can become projectiles thrown at your property or thrown at other people. Don't give them away to hurt anybody. So what are some of the other emergencies? Because guess what? You know, there are other things that we have to deal with and here are some of the ones that are the most common for lack of a better word, stupidity. <laughs> People should perform their work carefully and cautiously. And you take a look at this picture. And these pictures were produced several years ago. It was before the advent of Photoshopping. So someone is actually standing on a forklift. It's being lifted up by another forklift. Not very smart. Uh, this is what happens when you don't do recurring maintenance. And this is an exploded transformer as a result of people not doing the things that they should be doing. And we need to ensure that they're doing them properly. And last but not least, the people should be doing perimeter checks to see how well exterior components are in the facilities. Obviously someone forgot this one. And that is not a fake drawing. That literally is just a lack of attention. We can avoid these type of problems. Just by being astute and ensuring that our people are aware that something like this, which would be a a fire line, could literally make the difference between someone's life being saved and someone's life being lost. Let's get into mitigation. There's a few areas that I want to cover on this one. And the idea is what can we do to reduce our organization's vulnerability to the threat at hand. first and foremost is what I call the risk assessment matrix. You may have heard of it before. And what it does is it gives us a quantifiable way of understanding the risk. This chart is just an example. And it's very simple to do. In the upper row, you see the information, the type of emergency, probability, human impact, property impact, business impact, internal resources, uh, external resources, and I'm gonna have to move this window, what the total number is. Okay, so on the X axis here, excuse me, the Y axis, you see the type of emergency, fire, severe weather, hazardous spills, transportation accidents, earthquakes, terrorism, utility outages, and any others, but I wouldn't be specific to be completely candid with you. That first row on the far left-hand side is identified by you with the assistance of those in your organization or from the help of your local municipality on the type of emergencies that you could potentially experience at your location or locations. So, You would review all of it. If flooding is an emergency that you could potentially face at your location, you would put that in that first column as well. Moving over now to the right-hand side of the matrix. Probability, high and low, literally depends on how probable is something going to happen that's identified as an emergency. And you take a look at this chart. It says that earthquakes have a probability of one. So that might happen maybe once every 50 years or 25 years. You determine what the number should be based on the probability of an emergency coming onto your property. The next column, human impact, is what happens to your people if it does come. Looking at earthquake again, if an earthquake does come, it's going to have a high human impact. So the probability is it doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, it is significant when it does. And then what is going to be the impact on the property? In this case, it's one, meaning your facilities are constructed in such a way that if the earthquake does come, based on the type of severity that has happened in the past, you may have some minor damage. That's the logic that you use for the entire matrix, but every single emergency, you determine exactly what that number should be within those follow- on subsequent rows. The beauty of this is when you actually total up the numbers and it's simple arithmetic, you have a priority now in terms of where you should expend your resources to try to mitigate the impact of that threat. So for the first, emergency fires, you have a total score of 26. That tells us that since that's the highest total number that you have, when it comes to resources and when it comes to dealing with those threats, the first priority should be fire because it has the highest risk that you face. And then you work your way down. This is a good way to justify now in your business case why you need those resources from those who are responsible for funding them. Next slide. Facility vulnerability assessment. Once you've quantified the risk, now you need to determine what the vulnerability is for your particular facility. So our objective is to identify, map, and gather information regarding all of our critical facilities. There are certain facilities on our portfolio that are more important than others. The way I typically identify the critical facilities is I take a look at the core mission of the organization that we support. That core in mission will tell you literally the purpose and the reason for that organization to exist. That statement will identify what those critical facilities are going to be. For an example, if you're Google, then critical facilities will most likely be those facilities where all of your servers are being stored, or your power facilities, or your HVAC systems. Because in order for us to be able to access the information that Google provides, they need those things in order for those services to be delivered. So you can do that with any organization and determine what those critical facilities are. And once you've determined what those critical facilities are, then you do what you can to prevent or minimize any future damage to them. So some primary steps, complete a critical facility inventory, just literally in priority order, what are they? And what categories of way do they fall into? Power, infrastructure, whatever you determine it's going to be. Now, identify the critical facilities and high risk area intersections, meaning, You might determine that your HVAC is a critical infrastructure, um, um, critical intersection, particularly when it comes to Google, because those servers need cooling. Then you do a vulnerability assessment on the highest risk facilities. If an event does happen on your property, what is the likely impact going to be in terms of that facility being available to continue providing those services? And do you have a backup? If it goes down, do you have an alternative source, alternative facility that can now be brought online to make sure that business continuity continues? Now, we need to be warned of an unpending threat and we also need to monitor its progress. There's a couple of ways you can do that. Uh, You can use the low tech approach. And what this slide identifies literally is a radio that has a hand crank to it, so you don't have to rely on batteries, which tend to always drain when you really need them. So not only do you have a way of creating power so you can get those important messages, but this one in particular will allow you to um, recharge your cell phone if that's a part of your vital communication network. Other ways you can do this is a little more high tech, are GIS systems can now provide layers upon layers upon layers, which can help us to identify literally what the impact area is going to be based on a particular threat. You, you can program that program that into your system so that you can now identify based on what the potential impact is going to be, those areas that need to be evacuated. Let's move into preparedness how FMers can prepare their organization for, th- for the coming threat and there are four ways that we'll address an the emergency action plan education and training and drills with that being said uh, what i'd like to do now is just go on a quick pause for about 10 minutes and that will allow you to take a reconstitution break i will resume again and according to my watch it is local time in Riyadh. So, I will resume again at 6.39 local time in Riyadh.
1: Okay, 10 minutes break, so everybody can get back. Okay, so um, let's let's uh, go to Mr. Said, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. His microphone is also muted, but he needs to yeah. unmute it by himself. Let's- yes, I understand. Uh, However, anybody- they can also write us. I mean, they they have a section of. Uh, a Q&A, they can put their questions over there. Okay, that would be great. So um, yeah, we can proceed in a bit yeah, time. We'll,
0: we'll do that. Um, those who have your microphone on mute, I understand completely, especially if you're sheltered at home like I am right now. Uh, as um, Ahmed said, uh, please, if you don't wish to unmute, just type your question and then he'll be able to see them and then he can read them to me and then I can address them that way. So uh, let's press on. We're now going to get to the preparedness. You know, we've already addressed mitigation, how we can reduce our vulnerability. And we are now going to be talking about preparing for the threat because, again, they will come. There is an individual who I've studied when I served in the active duty U.S. military, George S. Patton. And he is famous for saying those who fail to plan are planning to fail and he is absolutely correct. We don't know what the future is going to bring but we have an indication of what it could be based on historical precedent. So emergency act the emergency action plan is a document printed as well as electronic that contains the pertinent information that we would need to have oh I'm sorry there we go that we would need to have that allows us to plan survive and recover from an emergency. Now, it's a very detailed document and you can actually do a Google search and get a lot of information on the specific sections that should be included within that emergency action plan. What I'm sharing with you right now are the main thrusts. Number one, it has to identify who's responsible for getting certain things done at a projected time and a projected place. No plan. Survives first contact. So that threat, when it comes, it may do something that you hadn't completely anticipated. Guaranteed, if you haven't identified who is in charge, what resources are available, when are they supposed to be deployed, and at what location in advance, well, then when the threat does come, people will start getting very scared for obvious reasons. And we need folks to demonstrate that they have the situation in hand. We are prepared for this and we're ready to respond for this. Lines of authority in your organization, who is gonna be in charge at the time that that threat arrives? It might be the organizational head. It may be a deputy, but at least somebody has to be recognized as a person who can give the orders that need to be given or give the approval of recommendations that are made by the responding teams? And what kind of relationships should we have internally with other functions to ensure that the resources, again, are made available when they need to occur and where they need to occur? Also, identify specifically who will be involved in the emergency response and the recovery effort. What equipment has been set aside or needs to be contracted in advance in order to be used? What facilities will be used for sheltering? Or it may be a place where the equipment is stored so that it's readily available should the need occur. And if we have personnel that's gonna be sheltered on our campus, then what supplies have been made available for them? Food, clothing, blankets, water, whatever the need might be. And we also need to state in writing what mitigation concerns we already know about that's going to have to be addressed during the response and recovery activities. For an example, independent power production. It may be in a reinforced facility, but somebody needs to make sure that we're protecting it from even its minor vulnerability because if it goes down, we have no capability at all. Also, we need to get people out of harm's way, as I mentioned. That means we need to practice. We need to evacuate and conduct drills to ensure that folks know exactly what to do and where to go. Now, admittedly, you may not necessarily need to have a drill that requires everyone to leave from your facilities. That's not practical in a lot of cases because we have real world work that needs to be done. But you can do certain areas if you have high-rise facilities and maybe one floor, but the rest are untouched. When it comes to low-rise facilities, you may want to evacuate all of it. Bottom line is, people have to get used to the fact that if the whistle blows, so to speak, well, then they need to move quickly and safely to their designated exit and onto that evacuation route. We do wanna minimize as much downtime as possible because again, we have work that needs to be done. Business continuity is still important, but we don't want to get complacent. So every once in a while, we may wanna change things up so that people don't start getting used to doing the same thing over and over again. And also, if something does happen, whether it is a drill or if it's for real, There are different lighting systems or audible systems that we can put within our facilities to sound the necessary alarms. And if the power does go down, even the internal power packs to these systems, we can actually designate individuals to go inside to make sure that individuals are aware that an emergency has occurred, either fake or real, and help them to leave the facility as well. Okay. Rule of five. I'll be quick on this. This is something that was developed in the state of California because they have a lot of high rise facilities. The idea is when you're doing an evacuation, floor number 10 is the floor that actually has an emergency going on. In this case, it's a fire. What you want to do is evacuate the two floors above it and two floors below it. So the fire obviously is going to rise, so anybody on floor 11 and floor 12 needs to be evacuated. It's absolutely possible that you may have either active fire suppression or first responders that can get there to make sure that the fire doesn't go beyond those two upper floors. That's why 13 and the others don't, t- don't get touched. Nine and eight, the fire could go below two because of the separations in the floor. So the same type of idea, you evacuate the two floor belows, but the ones below that, that's okay. Now keep in mind, this is not like 9-11. We're talking about a localized fire on a single floor, floor 10, but that's a way of not only saving people who are at high risk from a small fire, but also it provides you a way of doing a drill too, so they can get used to leaving the building again, through their designated exit routes. So getting back to work, when the drill is over, they need to return in an orderly fashion, staggered if possible, but they ought to return the same way that they left. That way it gets reinforced. Evacuate by small groups and you're released back by small groups as well. Whoever's in the emergency staff mode, needs to maintain communication throughout the entire process. Personnel accountability is still important. So we need to know where people are, when they return, and then when it's time to let the next group to return. And after we do the drill, then we evaluate our performance. Did what occurred align with what we had planned to do? So the emergency action plan identifies what we should be doing. And actually, we go to the drill, we find out if that's exactly what we did do. Did it occur based on the procedure? Did it occur based on the amount of time that we established? Did people do better this time than the last time? And what about the emergency management crew? How did those who's coordinating this event, how well did they work together? And lastly, did we choose the right point of egress? Meaning we got people out of that danger zone as quickly as possible without now causing a congestion because too many people were using the same stairwell. Let's go into planning of the facility itself. And we have a couple of um, decisions we have to make. When it comes to emergency space, are we going to retrofit an existing room or are we going to do something brand new? Is it going to be shared space? Meaning it might be a conference room during normal times, but during an emergency, it now serves as your emergency operations center, or as a dedicated space. That's all you use it for all the time. What type of technology do you need to make sure you can stay in communication? Not only with the individuals who are doing a response and recovery, but also the outside world to know what kind of threats may potentially be still coming. Where do we place it? Do we put security in it, meaning, that's going to be a place of refuge for a lot of people who know that that's where the secure facilities are that we need to provide layers of protection so that people do not go into the space that really is dedicated towards dealing with that emergency and is it in a facility that's also vulnerable to the threat? so can it survive whatever it is it's coming? Couple of footstompers when it comes to doing space planning for an emergency area on your, on your property. First, develop your concept of operation. It's no differently than any design project. Know exactly what you seek to accomplish. Facilities just enable us to accomplish whatever it is that that space was designed and constructed to do. So we should have an idea of exactly who should be there, what type of work they should need uh, to do. do different type of technologies, and then we will develop the facility, whether it's shared space or its own dedicated space, based on the functions that have to be performed And if you can use one space that has multiple roles, like a conference room, they can now be turned into an emergency operation center, knock two birds out with one stone. You'll save money and you'll have better efficiency and effectiveness of the utilization of that space. Uh, just recognize though, if the space is not used on a regular basis, the utilization rate is low, then it's absolutely possible that somebody might just decide to use that space for some other purpose. So keep it in shape. Be flexible in terms of how it's used, and also if the threat does come to that specific location where you have your emergency space, you need to be prepared to leave it. Which means have kits that will have all of the critical documents that can be printed and taken with you, so you can go to an alternate space. Now, when it comes to these spaces, space configurations with with, um, specifically, we should identify an arrangement that maximizes the communication and eye contact between the decision makers. So you have your senior team and you have support personnel that'll be within that space as well. They need to see each other. They need to be able to talk to each other. And there's five different layouts that allows you to do that. The boardroom is like you would see in a normal boardroom. You have somebody at the head and you have people surrounding the table. Mission control is like you see in the movies when it comes to uh, space exploration. So you have a large screen in front of you, and then you have people sitting in rows of desks behind it. Marketplace literally looks like a bazaar. You have desks that are specifically identified and labeled at different areas within that large room, but you know where these people are and you just physically go to where you need to go in order to deal with them. The bullseye idea is having the chief decision makers right there in the center. They're in the middle of the room, and then everybody basically just surrounds them. So all eyes are focusing on them, and they have easy access to seeing everyone else that's there to support them. And hybrid is a robust complex where you'll have an emergency operations center but you also may have recovery rooms where people can get some rest. You may have kitchens, you may have gymnasiums, depends on the type of emergency and the type of facilities and the type of mission that you have. But this may be a robust facility, specifically designed to provide all the support that's necessary on site, so it is self-sustaining. And ideally, you want it to be able to sustain operations for a minimum of seven days. Okay. Not only do you have the physical emergency operations centers, you also have the mobile ones. And uh, emergency managers use these on a regular basis, again, again, because some of these threats don't have respect for facilities. And you can also use them to go to localized emergencies, where it's on a particular area within your campus but it's not affecting your entire campus. So you want to be in the warm zone area, close enough to recognize what's happening, but you want to also reduce the amount of space that it takes to send people if necessary. I Identify four types that are available. And literally, it's like your space configurations. You decide what size you need based on the amount of personnel that you need in order to now manage that emergency. Now, they should be able to operate in austere environments, literally. They have everything that you need right there in that vehicle. So you don't need external power, you don't need external water. When it comes to that power, at least three to four days of fuel should be available on that mobile vehicle. It could be for long-term. That just means you have to be able to replenish it. But it does allow you to have communications. It can be a forward operating location for your main emergency operations center. Shouldn't take long to set it up and it provides basic personal needs. So there'll be a a bathroom on there. You may have a oven, you may have a refrigerator, but minimum needs just to take care of the essentials. Virtual emergency operations centers. We're seeing a lot of this now because of the pandemic. So the managers are still able to make critical decisions because the processes are what allow them to make the decisions. Their physical presence isn't necessary. So they're relying on technology to now complete the necessary actions so decisions can be made and orders can be accomplished. Now, there are great ways of managing resources, no differently than our CMMS system. You can see exactly what resources are remaining available, what the depletion rate is, you can actually order a replenishment if necessary. It will assign and track tasks no differently than our work order management systems. And because it is IT enabled, it can provide us real time information, instantaneous. As soon as that person sends it, you can receive it. And ideally, you can provide redundancy and flexibility that may not necessarily exist in the physical EOCs. So response, coming close to the end now. We'll cover a few things that have been used here in the US for quite some time now, and I venture to say rather effectively. First is the instant command system. Uh, This actually came into place shortly after the turn of this century, as a matter of fact. It was actually developed by wildland firefighters in California back in the 1970s. We decided to now implement it at a national level. And it's very simple. You have whoever's in charge, and then you have four separate functions that report to that individual. Operations, I like to call putting the wet stuff on the red stuff, they're actually dealing with the threat. You have the planners who are preparing for the next phase that's going to occur. Then you have logistics. They have the supplies, the transportation, facilities, all the things that are necessary to sustain these individuals working in the emergency operations center, as well as those folks who are deployed to deal with the threat. And, of course, resources, you know, vision. Without financing, it's hallucination. When it comes to dealing with an emergency, responding and recovering from it, you need finance as well. So tracking expenditures so that reimbursement can occur at some point in time is a critical function under the ICS. It does provide a unified command and control structure because everyone in the US is expected to use a simple model, whether you're a firefighter, police officer, bomb disposal, and medical, it makes no difference. And the beauty of it is it allows you to now modularly put these different teams together where you can integrate them into a larger system and still have interoperability and compatibility because people will know if they work in planning, whether they're firefighters, police officers or medical, they know that they're supposed to be taking the actions necessary to prepare for the next phase. Of dealing with the threat. Now everybody is singing from the same sheet of music. Everybody understands what they're supposed to be doing. So it just standardizes the way we do emergency response and recovery. It's a very effective system and I would encourage you to go to the National Incident Command System website through the U.S. Homeland Security. A lot of downloadable information is available. If you don't have a unified command and control structure within your organization, this is a a proven best practice template that you can use to design your own. And it will serve you well. Emergency Operations Center, talked about it before. It is a master coordination and control point for all counter-emergency efforts. Before we were talking about preparing, planning for it. Now it actually exists. It will give a situational awareness of what's going on. So decision makers can make informed decisions. It can be used to coordinate and deliver support for all emergency responders. The functions are threefold. You can exchange information, again, maintain situational awareness, do assessments and do the necessary planning command and control, ops orders, operational orders are issued by the director to the flights, uh, to the individuals out there that's now responding to the threat. You can actually have measured response. We're going to send this team here, followed by another team, or we can have multiple teams going at the same time. Assignments are tasks, resources are allocated, and directions are given. And the last thing, we're coordinating. There are a lot of people in this room and there are a lot of people out there dealing with the threat depending on its size. So we are providing situational reports on a regular basis and they're being documented. So again, you know what's happening, you're recording all events and it also includes the financial piece as well. Technology, even more important nowadays. This is a list of the kind of technology that you may want to consider having as a part of your emergency operation center. People tend to be visual. They understand things better if they can see it as well as hear it. So having the ability to share information that way is gonna be critical. The rest
1: are pretty self-explanatory. Give you a chance to digest that.
0: Big takeaways when it comes to emergency operations centers and emergency operations don't reinvent the wheel. If you're doing something that works well and it's already based on a best practice, then keep doing it if it's helping you to deal with that threat and respond to it effectively. If you don't have something in place, again, my recommendation would be to go to the National Instrument Management System site and see what already works. Watch out for mission creep. What does that mean? You end up doing more than you originally planned to do because of whatever reason. If it's a bona fide need, absolutely. But if you're doing things beyond the emergency, what you're going to do is you're going to task people a lot longer, and they may be doing things that aren't an emergency, which is going to reduce their sustainability. So be very select when it comes to what you direct your teams to do. Uh, The dual design, again, makes a lot of sense. Conference room during normal time, emergency operations center when it's not. Uh, Being flexible, being prepared to leave it in case the facility itself becomes a threat or it is being threatened. Um, Always have a backup. My favorite phrase or one of them is, never put all of your eggs in one basket. Be prepared for the fact that power might go out within your facility, and if it does, What do you do then? What's your backup? And keep those lines of communication open so that information is flowing smoothly, deliberately, and orderly. What we want to do is ensure that our leaders, those who support them, as well as our responders, can make informed decisions based on the best information available because they may not get a second chance if they're really dealing with a hazardous threat. Also, internal and external support. Provisions are going to be necessary, not only for our personnel that's engaged in this effort, but even people who are sheltering on our campuses because there was no other place for them to go. So that means if we know that certain facilities on our campus will be used specifically for shelter, And we need to make sure provisions are available that means first aid kits or a station food and water and non-perishable items mres meals ready to eat last for a very long time i've subsisted on them for quite some time when i served in the active duty military they're not the most tastiest thing compared to some of the things that you can get from a restaurant but they will satisfy your nutritional needs and also give you the necessary calories that you can burn in case you literally have to now evacuate or you're part of the response threat. Vendors, if you're going to have contracts with vendors, you want to make sure that they are dependable, meaning they will be there when you need them and they will respond at a time timeframe within, um, within the specific time. Also, some of your vendors, if you're going to have contracts with them, since emergencies can happen 24 7, they need to be accessible 24 7. Price gouging, unfortunately, occurs when it comes to certain vendors during emergency events. So, in advance, you can develop contracts where you identify what the cost is going to be so that it's reasonable in comparison to what the normal rates would be. And again, they're going to be available to provide whatever you need. And recovery, coming to the final part now. You have damage assessments and then you have the critical infrastructure restoration. Those are two major aspects of how we can help our organizations get back to normal after the threat has been eliminated. So after the event, For obvious reasons, we want to assess the scope of the damage that has occurred. So we will send teams out, whether they're contracted or our own personnel from maintenance, to survey our property internally to the buildings, externally for the infrastructure. We need to know what damage the threat has caused for a very simple reason. Business continuity. We want to bring our campus back to normal operations. That means we're gonna have to repair or replace some of the things that were damaged as a result of the onset of the threat. This is where insurance comes into play, if you have it available. They will need to assess themselves what the damage is. We make it easy for them by performing a lot of it, which they will eventually validate. Also, we may have to decide to salvage certain things that are salvageable, or we may have to eliminate certain things because they were non-recoverable. Our damage assessment teams that are doing the assessments will help us to make those determinations. Uh, The command center will still be in operation, even after the threat is gone, because they may be coordinating the activities of our maintenance teams until we return to normal operations. So again, making sure those key individuals are there, specifically when it comes to certain phases of this operation, now in restoration is gonna be very important. So you may actually have emergency, excuse me, facility management personnel that have designated seats within your command center because they will be the ones that'll be responsible for directing the crews that are now going across the entire campus to see what the scope of the damage is. The emergency account number, certain organizations will have a special account specifically to address emergency actions and the reimbursement thereof which means if your organization has such an account and sometimes headquarters will set aside funding specifically for these emergencies especially if we let them know in advance that we're vulnerable and that way money can be drawn from that account to address the recovery needs of that emergency, as opposed to the normal account that's used for regular operations. Logistics and catering, yes. People may be working for quite some time repairing the damage that was caused by the threat. So food and lodging may be necessary, especially if you have a campus that's not in a main operating area. Here's some examples of some placards. This was actually developed by um, some emergency organization within California. And it's very simple to understand. When your teams are going out to assess their facilities, they're basically doing an inspection. They will identify the results of their inspections on these placards. This is a green card. And when someone has done an inspection, and they use a green card to identify the results of that inspection, it means that no hazard was found. It means that repairs may be required for that facility or infrastructure. That means that the vertical loads or lateral forces, meaning the stability of that structure has not been significantly decreased and it is lawful based on local jurisdiction to occupy that space again. Here's an example of a facility they would get a green card. Now, you see that awning, which could be a carport, has separated from the main building. Well, that's okay, because the people will be occupying that main building. So structurally speaking, in terms of the uh, the facility itself, it's still usable, but you still identify that repair that needs to be done by that team that did the assessment. Yellow. This is the car that you use for these considerations. The building has been damaged. It may or may not be usable or habitable. It may be falling, it, it may be a falling, it may have a falling hazard presence, meaning something could fall down that's been shaken loose as a result of the threat coming through. It may be damaged in terms of its lateral stability or its ability to hold vertical loads and occupancy permitted per any noted restrictions. Here's an example of that. You see the cracks on the exterior facade of that building. That could be structural. It may literally just be the painting, we don't know. Bottom line is whenever we see something like that, our responsibility is to ensure that we have structural engineers come in and do a thorough and evalu- evaluation. But that cracking may only be in a certain area of that larger facility. So that means that area will be cordoned off. But other parts of the facility may still be usable. Again, a structural engineer is key on being a part of that damage assessment team to determine whether that is a safe facility or not. And red, very simple, unsafe. That means... That facility or infrastructure is an extreme hazard and it may collapse on you. Um, Imminent danger from collapse from an aftershock if it's an earthquake incident. Also significant decrease in its ability to support vertical loads or withstand vertical wind forces. It's lateral stability capacity. And also it is just unsafe for use with the exception by the authorities who have the rights to be in there. There's an example of what that looks like. So that's essentially an unusable facility. Now one might take it for granted. Of course, it's not usable. Okay, no argument. The key is the placard is still used because now it lets everyone know that we had teams to go out and do the full review of every facility on our campus that may have been affected by the threat that's now been removed. Additional restoration actions. We need to assist affected employees. Right now, we're dealing with the COVID here in the U.S. And as you probably have heard from your news sources, uh, many businesses have been shut down as a result of it to mitigate the spread of the virus. Well, these employees are at home, and they're encouraged to keep safe distance from other individuals within their immediate vicinity. Well, not only do we have the financial burden that these individuals are facing right now because they are unemployed, but there's also the psychological effects, too. As an employer, it is our responsibility to continue looking after them, even if they're not actually engaged in a restoration effort. We can never forget about safety. That is still going to be the number one way that we can serve to protect the lives of our people, either they're em- whether they're employees or visitors to our property. So that's always gonna be a constant throughout every single phase of emergency management. Uh, Just because the threat is done and passed doesn't mean we need to let our guard down. As it relates to COVID, is that genuine concern about a reoccurrence or another outbreak as things start to dissipate? Well, that means that we also need to still follow the instructions that our local authorities are giving us in order to mitigate the possibility of that happening. Always be mindful that the threat is there, that doesn't mean that we cower in fear. That just means that we recognize there are things we can do to mitigate the potential of that threat becoming an emergency. And from a facility management perspective, we're monitoring the restoration progress. Any work that needs to be done on our facilities to bring them back to normal operation conditions, we should be prepared to be able to report that progress, particularly to those who are resourcing that effort. So, bottom line is we need to keep the lines of communication open at all times with our employees, with the family members, our own family members, and let them know that we're okay. The media will want to promote and project the latest and greatest information. We need to make sure that we give them the accurate information. If we do that, then they have a higher probability of actually sharing what we need them to know. If we don't want people to come to our campus, then we give that to the media so they can telecast that to those who might be interested in coming, but may not be aware that this area is now sectioned off. We need to keep our communications open with our insurance providers. Again, they're expected to finance a lot of the restoration effort, if not all of it. So they need to be aware that their money is going to be used for its intended purpose government agencies. Governments are there to protect us. I can get into more detail, but that's the bottom line when it comes to government organizations. So we need to keep our lines open with them in terms of what we can do for them, particularly if we're a service provider, or what they can do for us because we are citizens and we need their support and protection as well. Sample press releases, very simple. Keep it short, keep it sweet, Keep it accurate. So if we are responsible for facilities of an organization that is actually of significance when it comes to our government or our local communities, people are gonna to wanna to know what's going on with you. So our job is to make sure that whatever is reported, we put it in writing, keep it short, keep it simple, just keep it to the facts. And then that way, if it's released in a press relief, then the same information is going to everyone. You don't have to worry about confusion of mixed messaging. So let me pause for a moment and ask if we have any questions.
1: Yeah, we have a few questions that uh, we can answer. Okay, great. Uh, Yeah, I can read some of uh, those. For example, Mr. uh, Arash is asking, what's the difference between emergency preparedness and business continuity planning? (laughs) That's a great question.
0: Emergency preparedness is being prepared or planning to address a potential threat so it doesn't become an emergency. Business continuity is how you're going to continue conducting business operations, even if that threat does come. For an example, emergency planning when it comes to your headquarters facility could include, but isn't limited to being able to evacuate your personnel from that property in the advent or the onset of say a flood. Business continuity would be what alternate location can these individuals go to and is it ready to be used by them so that business can continue to be conducted while we have teams addressing any damage that may result from that flood. So that's the difference. Business continuity is literally, your doors are still open. You're still able to provide services and products. Emergency preparedness is recognizing that some of the facilities that you use may not be available to do just that, but you have alternative means of being able to have people at a particular location that can provide the necessary, complete the necessary processes that leads to the production of services or products that now can meet your mission organization's responsibility. Great question.
1: Okay. Okay. We can proceed with the next one. Uh, Ayman is asking, when the EOCs are recommended to be used? Ah, any time that a
0: threat has been identified that potentially could be coming in the direction of your people and your property, that's when the EOC should be activated. Now, there's levels of activation. Say for an example, a hurricane here where I live in Texas, and of course we have the Gulf of Mexico and this is hurricane season actually begins on the 1st of June here. So we expect hurricanes to develop within the Gulf of Mexico. And many of them come in this direction. Our protocol is if there's a storm, whether it's a uh, tropical depression or a full blown hurricane, that's at least 250 miles away from this location, that's first level activation. So we'll activate our Emergency Operations Center, but we may only have one person in there that's monitoring its progress. As that storm gets closer, we may bring more people in. And as it gets even closer, we may completely activate it, meaning it's fully staffed and fully operational. And as that storm gets closer, that's when we start dismissing people from our campus to protect them. All of that, those orders are issued by the EOC. So the simple rule of thumb is the Emergency Operations Center should be activated whenever there's a potential of an emergency occurring, meaning a threat is coming. The only question is exactly to what level is it activated? Do you bring everybody in? Or do you bring a few people in and based on the progress of the threat, you start now doing other protocols? It's a great question, by the way, because the activation levels for your emergency operations center should actually be spelled out in writing within your emergency action plan. And it should be tested that way. Do the drill. Make sure that folks know who they are and when they should be coming into the EOC based on the activation level. Great question. That is something to be practiced. You don't need everybody in if the storm is literally way off on the horizon. Great question.
1: Okay, Uh, we can proceed. There are a few more uh, questions. Okay. Uh, Yeah, Amro is asking, what is the difference between emergency response plan and first response team? Ah, very good.
0: Okay. The emergency response plan is more operational, meaning you may have multiple individuals that are going to be responsible for conducting some type of emergency response. You're contracting personnel procurement folks. If you remember that slide that showed the command and control system, the elements of the uh, integrated command system the incident command system, excuse me. You saw operations, you saw planning, you saw administration, and you saw finance. Well, there are individuals within your organization that may have those specific responsibilities. From a facility standpoint, we, facility managers, tend to be in the operations and in the planning function. Operations, because we're going to be doing da- um, damage assessments as necessary. Planning might be what courses of action we're going to take in order to use other facilities. Um, we may be in finance at some point in time. Why? Because, again, we're already determining what the cost step is going to be for repairing the damage. My point is, when it comes to emergency planning and preparedness, we're talking about multiple disciplines that will be involved. But when it comes to first responder, we're literally just talking about those folks who provide first response. Facilities managers are not first responders. First responders are recognized as being people from law enforcement, police, fire department personnel, medical personnel, individuals who are responsible for explosive ordnance disposal, so those literally are the major threats and those individuals who respond site they're the ones who go into the hot zone. Even right now, with this COVID outbreak, the primary lead, as you might've noticed, when it comes to the technical aspect of responding to this threat, are medical personnel. Absolutely, because they know how to deal with viruses. If it was a bomb threat, on your campus your first responder would be those bomb squad personnel if it was an attacker that is doing say workplace violence well then your first responder will be law enforcement because they're the ones who are trained to deal with individuals who pose that type of physical threat so great question oh and let's not forget a fire if a fire breaks out at your facility, your first responder will be firefighters. The key is they tend to handle the tactical incident-specific actions. And one way that I differentiate first responders from others is when it comes to first responders, it literally, they may have only about three to seven seconds to do something before somebody might lose their life. That's how critical their role is, they're first on the scene, they're dealing with the immediate threat and they're trying to eliminate it as quickly as possible. They have specific training and certification that they must obtain before they can do that. Another way that you can identify first responders are badging within the US and many other countries for that matter. When it comes to medical, in Western culture, you'll see the cross. In Eastern, or GCC countries, you see the crescent. That symbol means something to people. So when you're in a crisis situation, seeing those symbols will actually bring comfort to individuals, and that's why they wear them. Any other questions? Great one. Yeah, there are
1: a few more uh, from Ahmed. He's asking, with the economy crisis, how we could reduce the facility charges? To match the market situation without reducing the staff. Boy, that's a
0: very complicated question. And I'll try to answer yeah. it as simply as I can. Anyway, some organizations recognize that the occupants of our facilities will be going through some major financial cash flow problems, especially if they can't use our facilities because of mandatory shelters in place. I know some organizations that are willing to reduce rates or forego rates for this period of time. It's gonna pose a financial challenge in the organizations that we work for because we still need power, we still need water, we still need all of those utility services. But we recognize that the individuals who would normally use our facilities aren't available to use them right now. Now, I can speak for the United States, and there may be other countries doing the same thing. Our federal government recognizes the financial burden that this is having on small businesses. And in the US, 90% of the business that's conducted is by small businesses, meaning 100 people or below. I believe that's the number. So the federal government has set aside funding. And right now, it's at the tool of over $2 trillion U.S. dollars. And there's discussion about doing another bill to support this uh, restoration effort. So the federal government right now, U.S. federal government, is taking money that it had accumulated from taxes and uh, uh, providing no costs forgivable loans to small businesses so they can have the cash flow to continue their employees and keep them um, uh, to keep their employees um, engaged they're at home but at least they're still being paid and as long as all of that money goes towards the employees those small businesses do not have to repay that loan if organizations choose to use some of that money for something other than their employee's salary, say paying utilities, in our case for utilities, then some of that money will have to be paid back, but it will be at a low cost loan rate and there'll be time that will be set aside in allowing these organizations to repay that loan. We will get past this COVID, we will. We've gone past these pandemics before. None of them has affected the global economy such as this, but we will get over this. So that's money that's being put aside and set aside specifically to address the needs of these businesses so that when we do get over this COVID outbreak, we can go back to normal and start conducting normal business operations again. I tried to keep that as simple as possible based on some real world experience that I'm personally having because I'm actually a member of the Texas State Guard. So we are actually doing a lot of things to try to help people here within the state of Texas. Uh, I don't know if I was able to answer that question. If you want to ask it again or another facet of it, I'd be happy to do so.
1: Yeah, he can raise his hand if he wants to, uh, I mean, have uh, the audio uh, connection, we can allow that as well. However, okay. we, can, we can proceed because there are a few more questions that we can answer. Okay. So uh, the next one is, uh, uh, should emergency preparedness and response plan be made part of the legal requirements? I'm sorry, what was the question? The last uh, one again? Yeah, should emergency preparedness and response plan be made part of the legal requirements? Regular requirements? Yeah. Be, yes. yes. Part of the legal, legal, legal requirement. Oh, legal, 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 thank you. Yes.
0: Yes. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I did not address that, okay. but yes, anything that we are specifying in terms of what we expect our employees to do. As they are preparing or responding or restoring our campus, we need to make sure that we have the legal authorization to do so. Here's an example of that. I mentioned damage disaster, I should be, damage assessment teams that will go out and survey the damage after the threat is gone. Well, some of the facilities that they Will assess may be extremely dangerous. They may have received one of those red placards. Well, what is the legal risk that we're putting themselves into? And what impact does that potentially have on us by directing them to go into facilities that literally may not be structurally safe for occupancy, let alone visiting? So, yes, we need to make sure that all of our plans and specific actions that we expect our people to take. Are reviewed by legal authorities to make sure that we're not incurring any additional liability. We just need to know that in advance. Even our personnel that we allow back in the facilities, or if you're in the hospitality industry, what about guests? What happens if they go into a facility that may have been damaged as a result and now people might start getting sick? Well, we need to, again, make sure that everything that we plan to do is actually reviewed by legal experts to make sure that we ourselves don't inquire any liability, which could be a major financial fine as a result of our telling people to do something, whether they work for us or they're just using our campuses. Great question.
1: Yeah, we have a few more. Uh, Please. Yeah, Mr. Nawaf is asking, as assurance provider inside the company, how can I evaluate the effectiveness, efficiency, and the implementation for emergency action plan or business continuity? Uh, (laughs) How, when, and where we start? Oh, That's a great question.
0: I, I would suggest that if you're responsible for providing those insurance services and you know who your clients are, ask them if you can be a part of the emergency action planning process they're going to come to you anyway it's like us as facility managers we want to know about thoughts of providing a new facility on our campus before the ribbon-cutting ceremony if you already have a plan to do this let us be a part of it because it's gonna be part of our portfolio at some point in time, we're gonna be responsible for operating and maintaining it. We might recognize something that needs to be addressed in the planning phase to minimize the overall cost once it comes into operation. I would say the same thing when it comes to insurance. Insurance providers, particularly those who are responsible for now responding to claims, know the kind of information they're looking for. Help us to know the kind of information you need because now, if it's in our plan, we can start capturing that information. So when we get to the point where we're filing these claims, it'll already be in the format containing the information that you need so that we can get an immediate response as opposed to a constant exchange of saying we need to have more information. So, yes, I think proactivity on anybody that's part of the emergency action planning team. And insurance providers would be one of them. Would just make it a lot easier to complete the restoration process and certainly allow us to get it done much quicker because we already had a common understanding and expectations before we actually had to make claims.
1: Great question yeah we can proceed um uh, the next one says who's the primary who is primary responsible for preparing these emergency documents
0: <laughs> i'm laughing right now because um i am one of many facility managers that ended up becoming facility management without necessarily knowing there was a facility management profession meaning facility managers have been doing a great job over the last 40 years, almost 50 years now, establishing a reputation of being able to get things done. As a consequence of that reputation, we tend to get involved in certain things that we may not necessarily have a vocational or academic background in. Emergency management is one of them. That's literally how I got involved. I mean, literally, I spent four, I spent... I was on active duty for about 20 years, and about five of those years cumulatively was spent in specific, in positions specifically responsible for emergency management. And I'm an architect. It's just that, guess what? <laughs> there are times when they need someone to address this. Now, again, I did not replace those who actually have emergency management degrees or were firefighters. But I was responsible for leading some of these teams. As part of my roles as facilities, because I was responsible for a campus and they were part of that campus. So, my answer to that is it really depends on who has the kind of training and experience that's best to lead the development of that effort. If you have an emergency management function within your organization, they would be the ideal people. To lead that effort, that doesn't mean they're doing all of the writing. It just means that they would assemble the team, like insurance, like lawyers, like facilities, and we would provide the inputs into that emergency action plan. If you don't have an emergency management function within your organization, within who would be in the best position to ensure that the right people are pulled together to make sure that that plan is developed? and it's reasonable and viable. That tends to be us, because we're used to coordinating with multiple disciplines. When it comes to the life cycle of a facility, design, construction, operations, and maintenance, we are responsible for that entire life cycle. Emergency management is a life cycle, and much of what I discuss literally applies to facility management. So I've been in a position where there was no one else to do it. So guess what? I ended up doing it, but I was smart enough to recognize my strengths and my weaknesses, so I relied on the expertise of individuals that did have that specific skill set to be a part of the team. Some of them were contracted. Some of them were in-house, but the key is making sure that the right people with the right skills and experience are responsible for not only taking care of the components within that emergency action plan, but the person who has the leadership and managerial experience to understand how all of these individuals should be working together towards achieving that common goal. And guess what? What is the definition of facility management? Encompasses a profession and encompasses multiple disciplines that ensures the functionality of the built environment Through the integration of people, place, process, and technology. Yeah. In the absence of a resident emergency management professional, that definition means that chances are one of us is going to be asked to lead that effort. And if nothing else, just remember: the within the top three of the most expensive assets that an organization has in order for it to accomplish its mission, facilities is definitely within that. First is gonna be our people, non-replaceable, and you have to pay them. Two, it could be the product or service that you're offering. So if you're like a Boeing aircraft, those planes are expensive. Number three inevitably is going to be facilities. So not only we're we responsible for one of the three most expensive assets that an organization has available, but we actually are used to working with a lot of people to ensure all of those efforts are coordinated together towards accomplishing that objective. Great question, hope that answers.
1: Great, uh, one more, uh, uh, Amra is asking, emergencies can be internal or external fire, environmental contamination, floating, power up, uh, outage, and so on. Do facility manager is responsible for all and must involve all these emergencies in his plan.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Our responsibility as facility managers should be completely spelled out in the organization's emergency action plan, without question. If it involves facilities or the threats to them, yes, we have to be directly involved. We're the ones that's gonna be doing the assessments. We're the ones that know what facilities are structurally sufficient in order to serve as a shelter. We're the ones responsible for fleet management in a lot of organizations. We're responsible for admin computers and that technology. We're also responsible for taking the necessary actions to repair, if not replace, these facilities after the threat is gone. We have to be involved. That doesn't mean it's a facility uh, management plan. Absolutely not. That's a whole different discussion when it comes to strategic planning and operations and maintenance annual plans. Now we're talking about what we will do when we're dealing with an emergency. And we absolutely have to be involved in that process. We should be physically located or at least have a representative that's physically located in the Emergency Operations Center. I didn't share it because it was a level of detail that you could get from the uh, website that I mentioned earlier for the National Incident Management System, but there's something called emergency support functions. There's 16 of them. Facilities is ESF, emergency support function three. They call it public works. That's us. So the US federal government recognizes the value and importance of having our direct involvement when it comes to responding and recovering from an emergency. So, yes, whether it's structural, electrical, utilities, water, it doesn't make a difference. If it impacts those things that we manage on a normal basis, then we have to be involved and we actually have to provide documented inputs that's going to go into that emergency action plan.
1: Okay, uh, I have one more question here. So I sure. Yeah, um, when the safety department can be involved with the accident and what their duties during the emergency service? The safety department? Yes, safety department can be
0: involved. Uh, uh, not a problem. Their role is very simple. Ensuring the safety of those people involved in the planning and the response and the recovery of some type of emergency that came on our property. Safety, they're primarily responsible for safety. They should be available if they are available to accompany us when we're doing our damage assessments. They're not a structural engineer, but they can indicate certain safety considerations that may be directed by the local jurisdiction that have to be adhered to and addressed before occupancy is allowed. Even if it's something that has a green placard or a yellow placard, safety is paramount. That's their job and they're specifically trained to identify those things. So for that picture that I showed earlier, when it came to that awning that came down on the side of that single-story facility, safety will require us to ensure that that area is specifically marked so that no one will now try to enter that space. Because if they try to go in there, something may fall off from that fallen awning that might hurt them. So safety has to be involved throughout the entire process. Safety should be a part of your emergency action planning team from the beginning. And they can identify certain requirements from the government that have to be addressed whenever that we're doing a response. Personal protective equipment. They will identify what our first, what our facility managers should be wearing, whenever they're going out to do their assessments. Now, ideally, we would know that information ourselves, but they absolutely are responsible for ensuring that we know. Great question.
1: Okay, um, so um, those are the questions that I have until now, Mr. Abdul Khal. I think he's raising his hats. I can okay. allow him to talk if he wants so. Oh let sure. Me, let, let me check if he uh, will be able to. He also ask us. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. He needs to unmute if he wants to speak. We can do that manually. Um, okay, maybe. Okay. okay. Okay, I think uh, he is not able to, to, to share with us the okay. opinion at this time. Uh, no worries. Um, we will
0: yeah. just go through this quick case study. Right. And um, if he has a question after this is done, I'll be okay. happy to answer them and any others that may come up. Sure, thanks. Okay, you're welcome. Well, uh, we're almost at the end now. I have a single case study. Uh, given the time that we've lost in the beginning, um, it probably would be best to just focus on this as opposed to the aircraft this is a case study that I wanted to discuss. Uh, a friend of mine and I actually provided a presentation at IFMAS, the International Facility Management Association's World Workplace. That is our annual conference and expo. And we presented this about almost seven years ago. Now, what's actually pretty cool about this is, well, it's historic, meaning I won't change anything that was presented when we made this presentation. Also, you'll find that this particular organization likely suffered through something that you may be challenged with today. And hopefully what I share will help you to address those challenges. So the Star Island Corporation actually is a resort conference center that's located in um, the state of Massachusetts, which is in the Northeast part of the United States. And my colleague was the facility manager there. And she was addressing a particular situation and identified what the problems were and what the solutions were in order to make sure that this particular campus, this portfolio, was better protected in the advent of a particular storm. So I'll take the next few minutes to just address exactly what occurred. Well, not only, uh, let me back up, excuse me. The Star Island Corporation had take key steps in order to recognize where the gaps were within their emergency planning response and recovery a lot of the questions that you're asking right now weren't asked with the store corporation. And if they were asked, they weren't addressed. So what my colleague realized that was that she needed to assemble all of the key individuals that should be involved in developing an emergency action and a business continuity plan. So first, that person had to identify who were the key stakeholders, no differently than we would when it comes to planning a capital investment project. Who would have the most invested interest to ensure that we are successful in being able to weather the storm as it were, and to keep the lights on business continuity. So that meant the CEO of the Star Island Corporation, that also meant the chief of operations, the chief of finance, the chief of human resources, so forth and so on. She presented the situation in terms of what was lacking and got their support in order to now allow different individuals within this corporation and contractors to come together and now go through the emergency action and business continuity planning process. It took time, it took resources. That's why she needed to go to the chief decision makers. Once she got their approval, then she started identifying, IDing the key players, who are the individuals that would provide some input, documented input towards developing this written plan. So we're talking about the writers now. And that meant we also had to start looking at what functional areas would be involved in developing it. I really do highly encourage you if you haven't already done so, to develop an emergency action plan and a business continuity plan. If you wish, I have examples. And Amit, if um, somebody wants to email me directly, I encourage them to do so and I will send what I have. I have a lot of documentation on this. When you read these templates, it literally identifies the vocations that should be involved. You will see an area for safety. You will see an area for contracting. You will see an area for finance because The templates provide verbiage that only these individuals could answer. It helps you, the document itself, the the planning document itself helps you identify who the key players are that should be providing the words that would now go into that template. The tipping point analysis was determining literally what at what point in time that we literally run the risk of this organization not being available after the advent of the storm. That was essentially a vulnerability assessment, not just facilities itself, for, but for the operations of the services that provided. Again, it was a, uh, a conference center and a hotel. So at what point in time will we have to shut down because we are no longer able to provide our services? And they did it in priority order and they identified what those points of vulnerability were and the risks of what would happen to the organization if it's not addressed. And then they started implementing their plan and they started testing the plan. They were drilling the plan. And as they did different drills, they revised the plan based on information they had not considered. No plan for survive survives first contact. So you're gonna run into something that you had not previously anticipated. And they continue to fill those gaps, whether it's personnel, or other resources so that whatever threat potentially could face that island, or at least that coast where they were on in Massachusetts, they could be able to weather the storm and keep the lights on. Fair State University, well, this situation was even worse. She had actually served as a facility manager there. They had no enterprise-wise emer- enterprise-wide emergency action plan, nothing. I mean, it just makes you wonder, uh, how could you exist in an organization with no emergency action plan? What do you do if an emergency occurs? There was no drills being conducted. There certainly was no plan for it to be identified in. So people were just doing their normal work. If there was a fire, folks figured it out. But the bottom line is nobody practiced what they should be doing in order to make sure that they can immediately get away from the threat. So... Plan was developed with the facility management senior class. Ferris State still offers an undergraduate degree in facility management, so the decision was to hey make this an actual class project. They have to learn these things anyway, so they actually developed an emergency action plan using students, and these students had an invested interest in doing a very good job of it because their grade depending on it. And students have to do research in order to complete their assignments. So they were able to go to a lot of these websites that I've been mentioning in order to get the expertise, the best practices to put together their respective plans for the class. But guess what? No plan survives first contact. So in order to ensure that this plan was viable, they actually did drills and they got the leadership of the faculty to include their union to support having these instructors do emergency drill practices. It was great. Uh, The physical plant personnel, meaning us, facility managers, we actually identified those facilities that were strong enough to serve as shelters in case some type of major threat did happily come through there. So if folks just could not get away completely, at least they could shelter in place and have relative safety. Interestingly enough, after they completed all of this, our tornado hit. No lives were lost. Now can you imagine what the consequences could have been if that same tornado hit, and everything that I just described had not occurred? Fortunately, We don't have to think about that. But what I am saying now is if you don't have or have not done what I just described, this is a time to pause and suggest doing the exact same thing that my colleague did. Recognize where those vulnerabilities are. We have no enterprise wide plan. We've never conducted any drills. Present that to your senior leadership. If you're not a university, obviously you won't have students to actually do the work for you for free. But the work still needs to be done. So this would be an opportunity to identify what resources you have in house to do it, or make the business case to retain the services of professional organizations such as mine and others that can actually do the lead work for you. Don't let an emergency come. And as you're doing a review, you realize, you know, there is something we could have done that would have mitigated and minimized the impact on people and property. So the lessons that she learned throughout all this experience is drill, baby, drill. (laughs) This is not drilling oil. This is about making sure that everybody that would be affected by an oncoming threat actually do exercises so they know what they should be doing and when they should be doing it so that panic doesn't set in if the emergency actually happens and you just keep training them, not only just the workforce, but the senior leadership as well, because they still need to be able to make these decisions. Your emergency operations center personnel, they need to train as well. They can do tabletop exercises actually. You don't actually have to deploy forces, but what's the process that you've identified and what systems are you using to ensure that these folks do respond when you need them to do that? And that way you're not even disrupting the workforce, but these people need to maintain calm. They need to have order, they need to have control so that they know exactly what they need to do when they need to do it. Also, this is a great way of securing ongoing senior management commitment. They're seeing the benefits of it. They're recognizing the value from it. It also created motivation for planning because now that we're planning for emergency actions, and of course these emergency action plans identify the facilities that are potentially at risk of an oncoming threat, and it also identified those facilities potential protection, shelter, if the emergency occurred, now you had justification to start submitting budgets for doing work in these facilities that now would show up in your capital improvement plan or your operations and maintenance action plan. So that now these facilities were in a much better position to be used for its intended purpose when it comes to an emergency. And admittedly, it did create some positive experiences. People got a chance to interact with people that they normally did not interact with people. Contracting, safety, finance, operational, first responders who may provide you the firefighters that you need if you don't have your own organic capability. People actually got a chance to meet them in a non-emergency situation. These individuals actually got a chance to Come on the campus, see where the hazardous materials are stored, recognize where the safe routes are before it became an emergency. The first time you meet your first responders should not be when the emergency occurs. Those relationships should develop before the emergency occurs. So there was a very positive outcome in terms of the full capability that were available to all of these folks responsible for ensuring that these threats don't turn into emergencies and the result also led to providing data that was used in business cases to support resourcing improvements to the facilities. Also, integrating performance and emergency management and continuity planning with annual performance reviews, meaning there was a certain time that we literally reviewed everything. We sat down and reviewed the information, does this still apply? Are there new laws that that have been legislated whereby we have to now change our plan because the requirements have changed? This was a dedicated time per year, according to my colleague. And I've experienced that myself, as a matter of fact, you always wanna make sure that your plan is still accurate based on any new developments. We also, from what I understand, were awarded leadership in this critical area. For those who stood up or stood out and made material contributions to developing this new product, they were recognized by senior leadership. And others got a chance to learn why this individual was being recognized as such. It also gave, from what I understand, my colleague the opportunity to experience how people were very creative in being able to solve problems. Sometimes as facility managers, we tend to focus on facilities, absolutely. Especially if you have an engineering background or architecture. But there may be some other individuals out there who say may be involved in safety, that may have a way of addressing a particular limiting problem that we're facing right now, that we may not have been thinking about because that's not our background and our training. So he she also learned that in order to do this to face these threats we're gonna have to be bold and decide in advance what we're going to do hopefully it will work but we've got to do something as I mentioned earlier the ostrich approach putting our head in the sand is not going to be successful and last part is a couple of other situations that she had addressed as it relates to certain facilities and certain organizations as a result of catastrophic events so um, she was familiar with what happened to a particular organization in tower two after uh the attack in new york city on 9 11. Tragedy because the bottom line in that situation was even with the best emergency action plan There are certain situations. You won't be able to address and That was ex- exactly one of them with that being said and even with the catastrophic loss of personnel and property That doesn't happen very often and I hope it never happens again but the majority of threats that we face are absolutely those that we can mitigate and we can prepare for, we can respond to it and recover from it. Because the idea is we wanna get back to normal business as quickly as possible, as effectively and efficiently as possible. The only way we're gonna do that is to plan to do so. That's how. So uh, when it comes to on-file current floor plans, for those of us who've been in this business for a while, you know, as-built drawings, are only accurate up until the day they are printed because something always changes within our portfolio on an ongoing basis. So if you can have electronic files contained within your CAD system, and your contractors that are now providing new facilities in your portfolio they're submitting those plans electronically at least now you can have up-to-date floor plan information that's going to be real critical when it comes to your first responders if they are called to now deal with a threat that happened on your campus also i mentioned earlier never put all of your eggs in one basket that's a metaphoric way of saying don't rely on just one way of doing something, particularly when it comes to alternative space or the lack thereof, or your information technology. There are a lot of organizations, and I actually read the 9-11 report. There are a lot of businesses that no longer exist because all of their data was physically located in those towers that came down. So, seriously? If you haven't already done so, back up your information on the cloud or some server farm located in a safe area. So that at least now, all of your business continuity information isn't lost as a result of the advent of some type of emergency. Uh, List of spaces in Manhattan for 150 staff members, what does that mean? That meant that all of those first responders had to be able to have a place to rest and reconstitute while this emergency was happening so this particular group had identified spaces that could be used interestingly enough for the threat that's happening in manhattan right now that's exactly what they've done for all of these uh, medical personnel that are volunteering to try to help reduce uh the casualty rate within new york city they've already identified space where they can rest after they finish their shift at no cost to them Ah, uh, disaster order with Dell. that basically boiled down to what would happen if something happened where they lost the ability to continue providing services. And that disaster order meant that, hey, they need to be able to ensure their continuity as well so that now they can meet the information technology needs of organizations that may have lost their computer capability. And lastly, Rehearsed evacuations, yes. You want to do this in controlled conditions where there is no threat, so people can actually think through what they're going to do. You can walk them through it with them, okay? You don't have to rush. What's important is this becomes rote, meaning if an emergency does happen, they don't even think about it. If they're a user of your facility space, they're just going straight to the door and they're not even constantly thinking about it. Also remind them that you need to take the most valuable resource that you need in order to deal with this particular threat. So you may bring your wallet or your purse, depending on your man or woman, but this is not an opportunity to download all of your files and start putting it on your portable laptop computer. That time could cost you your life. So they need to go through exactly what they're expected to do if they have to immediately evacuate their workspace. If you're part of the emergency action response team, then they need to um, what you call it, practice exactly what they would need to do if they have to leave their emergency operations center. If it's no longer functional, what do you do? So the final thoughts that I have are these. The ideal situation is we don't keep people concerned or afraid, but we also make sure that they're aware of the fact that the best way to protect themselves is for them to protect themselves. Allow us to help. They need to be aware of the threats that exist, not just the ones that come from off campus, but threats that we might be creating ourselves because we're not being good stewards of our facilities. We need to keep our folks informed. Any new developments, on some type of emergency action plan, the affected people need to know. If there's going to be a planned drill, let them know in advance. There may be times when you may wanna do unplanned ones, but there's no reasons why you can't let them know that on a certain day, we're gonna be conducting a drill on floor 10 so that people can be now better prepared to make adjustments in their work schedule, if necessary, so that they can fully cooperate and focus on the task at hand. Make sure all of our people are trained, not just the emergency action team members, but everybody that's going to be using our facilities in the face of an emergency. Make sure they're ready to respond, whatever their role may be, because there may not be a lot of advance notice, and as I mentioned early in this presentation, there's certain emergencies that are just sudden like a fire, so they need to be ready to move. Also, they should be excited, not panic-stricken, but recognize that everything that they do in a situation like that could save their lives and someone else's life too. So this is an opportunity to be very pleased where you can say that we lost no one because of the fire that happened in our warehouse, because we knew who was there, we knew what needed to be done, we ensured everybody got out, and folks were informed of how they were doing at that time. For those folks who don't know emergency management, we need to keep it simple for them. That's one of the reasons why in hotels, you will see the evacuation route in the back of your hotel room door. So if you choose to look at it, you will see that facility management with the assistance of emergency personnel, had already identified the quickest route. To get out from your hotel in case a fire or some other type of emergency happened. Bottom line is, with everything that I've shared, since we've been together, our primary role is to protect people. We remain the most valuable resource that any organization has. We are not replaceable, we are unique in what we do. And as facility managers, our job, primary role, is to make sure that people can not only be safe from these emergencies, but come back for that business continuity. I love what we do. Hopefully you do too. And hopefully the information that we've shared can help you to be better in your role as a facility professional by having exposure to the emergency management aspects of what we do and how we can support that profession as well as how their practices can help us be better better providers. Again, apologies on the technical challenges that we experienced. We may have lost a few people, but we still had a lot of people that were with us. I hope this was beneficial to you. Um, Let me just now, oh, I'm sorry. Get back to this last slide here. This is my contact information. I still look that way a little bit, a little grayer, but still smiling. Please feel free to contact me by that email address that's in the lower left-hand corner of the image of my business card. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions that you may have point you in the directions of free resources that are available. And if you happen to need our services, we actually provide that too. And traveling out to the GCC, as Lazo and Ahmed knows, is not a problem for me or my team members. So thank you for your time today. Again, we will get through this pandemic issue as we always have, and ideally we'll be smarter and stronger as a result of it. And facility management will have a major role in helping everybody to return to normal business operations. Thank you.
1: Yeah, great, I want to also thank everyone for participating in this extensive few hours webinar. I trust they found this useful, uh, the extensive explanation, and they will also find it applicable to their uh, work, considering the, the situation at this moment. And uh, we look forward for to our upcoming events, I mean, either online or the live, courses in the near future thank you as well thank you thomas you're very welcome i'm my pleasure anytime thank you very much i'll see you bye-bye bye-bye now bye